Welcome. So glad to see you. Welcome to Vision Weekend here at Union Chapel. I want to talk to you a little bit about what we're going to do next in the life of our church. I hope it's enthusiastic to you and inspiring to you. Today we want to look as our text from 2 Kings chapter 7, 2 Kings 7 verses 3 to 11. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. If not, of course, we'll project the words on the screen for you. Let me give you some context as you're turning there. 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7 describe this siege of a city called Samaria. Now at this time in the history of Israel, the kingdom was divided north and south, and the capital city of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And they are under siege by a superior force from Syria, the Arameans as they are described in this text, but they're Syrians. And they have surrounded the city of Samaria and they have besieged it. And it's gone on for months and months. It is a horrible, it's a horrific experience for people living in the city. They are literally starving to death. And chapter 6 of 2 Kings is very difficult to read because we find there that people were actually agreeing to eat one another's children. So cannibalism had begun to take place uh, and it was just... Uh, just the worst possible conditions. There are four lepers who are part of this story, and they are living just outside of the city gates. Now, they're not welcome in because people with the leprosy in the day were considered cursed of God and rejected by, by the community, and so they are living at, just outside of the gates of Samaria. And the Syrians, they don't care if they're alive or not. It just exacerbates the, the siege and the trouble that it's causing to Samaria itself. And so these guys are in no man's land, and they're starving to death. They are pitiful. They're leprous. They are, uh, when hard times come in Israel, these are the kinds of people who are the first to die. And so there they are. And we pick up the story then with these four lepers. Now, just before I read this text, the whole point of today's message as we come to the conclusion in just a little while is that you and I will find a direct association and identification with these four lepers. As I say it this way, you and I are just like these guys. We, we are in so many ways identical to these four lepers. And if we'll, if we'll assimilate that truth into our hearts, it'll help us get the perspective we need today. So again, from 2 Kings chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. We pick up the story with these guys at this point. I'll invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's word. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up, went to the camp of the Arameans, Syrians. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes, went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. 
If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them. We went into the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeeper shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. Now God inspires today. May he equip us with his truth through this powerful story today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. You all know what an autopsy is, right? An autopsy is a thorough study of the dead in order to determine the cause of death. Thorough study of the dead in order to determine the cause of death. We, we understand an autopsy and human beings are routinely autopsied. But you can autopsy businesses that have failed or institutions that have failed or organizations that have gone under. You can also autopsy churches. I have in my hand a formal autopsy from a local church. This comes from a professional church consultant who consulted a church and reports that that church's peak attendance occurred in 1975 when they were averaging 750 people in worship per Sunday. That's a strong, strong church. And when the consultant did his professional work with this church, they had fallen to an average of 83 people per week on Sunday. At the conclusion of his consultation services, he was asked by a leader in the church, how long do we have? And he said, unless major changes are made, the church will cease to exist in about five years. And he was wrong about that. The church actually lasted 10 years after the terminal diagnosis. This is the formal autopsy from the church. There are 11 points. I want to share them with you. Number one, The church refused to look like the community. The community began a transition toward a lower socioeconomic class 30 years ago, but the church members had no desire to reach the new residents. The congregation thus became an island of middle-class members and a sea of lower-class residents. Number two, the church had no community-focused ministries. This part of the autopsy, he writes, may seem to be stating the obvious, but there was no attempt by this church to reach their community. Number three, members became more focused on memorials. Now, don't hear me make a statement as a criticism of memorials. And he, he writes, indeed, I recently funded a memorial in memory of my late grandson. The memorials at this church, though, were chairs, tables, rooms, and other places where a neat plaque could be placed. The point is that the memorials became an obsession at the church. More and more emphasis was placed on the past. More time looking in the rearview mirror rather than looking forward. Number four, the percentage of the budget for members' needs kept increasing. At the church's death, the percentage was over 98%. 98% of all the receipts in the church were going to care for the people inside the walls. Number five, there were no evangelistic emphases. When a church loses its passion to reach the lost, the congregation begins to die. I say that again. When a church loses its passion to reach the lost, the congregation begins to die. And what we know is that church can be 10 members or that church can be 10,000 members. When that church loses its passion to reach lost people, people far from God, then that congregation will begin to die, as it should. Number six, the members had more and more arguments about what they wanted. As the church continued to decline toward death, the inward focus of the members turned caustic. Arguments were more frequent. Business meetings became more acrimonious. 
Number seven, with few exceptions, pastoral tenure grew shorter and shorter. The church had seven pastors in its final 10 years. The last three pastors were bivocational. All of the seven pastors left discouraged. Number eight, the church rarely prayed together. In its eight years, last eight years, the only time of corporate prayer was a three-minute period in the Sunday worship service. Prayers were always limited to members, their friends and families, and their physical needs. Any prayer requests today? Yeah, pray for Aunt Mabel. She's got the bursitis. That's a quote from a church service I was in once. I just reminiscing there. Number nine, the church had no clarity as to why it existed. There was no vision, no mission, and no purpose. Number 10, the members idolized another era. All of the active members were over the age of 67, the last six years of the church. And they all remembered fondly to the point of idolatry, the era of the 1970s. They saw their future to be returning to the past. No, there's no going back. You don't go back. (laughs) And finally, number 11, the facilities continued to deteriorate. It wasn't really a financial issue. Instead, the members failed to see the continuous deterioration of the church building. Simply stated, they no longer had outsider eyes. An organization called the Pew Institute within the last two weeks has issued a statement from the research that they have done. And this is the conclusion that they have drawn in the United States of America today. Roman Catholic churches and mainline denominational churches like Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, all of these churches are in precipitous decline in the United States. Like fall off a cliff in decline. Whereas evangelical churches in the United States... Those denominations like Southern Baptist, Assembly of God, other more conservative, evangelical, orthodox-oriented denominations are holding their own, according to the Pew Research Group, Pew Institute, holding their own or slightly on the increase. And as we observe this around the community and around the country, we know that these are churches that tend to be holding their own or slightly increasing, and in some cases, increasing dramatically, growing dramatically. We have new networks of churches that are independent churches, community churches, Bible churches who are orthodox. They believe the Bible true and are presenting a reliable, historic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people in a meaningful way. And these churches are holding their own and slightly increasing. Union Chapel is a rare exception as a mainline denominational church in that we too are holding our own and slightly increasing. And it's it's because of our orthodoxy and our, our commitment to doctrinal purity and authentic representation of Jesus Christ. There are about 300,000 churches in America. The experts are telling us now that about 100,000 churches in America, about one-third of all churches in America, now are terminally ill. Sooner or later, they'll die. As in, close the door, there's nobody left, open the door. How many of you are really excited and encouraged so far in this message? Are you just, are you inspired like never before in your life? You say, what do you, what do, so what do you want us to do? Here's, here's what I want you to hear. We need to, we need to face the facts. We need to face into reality in the life of the church here in the United States. 
And so my point of view is, look, if there's 100,000 churches in America that are acting stupid enough that we're requiring an autopsy in a few years, then they should die. The answer isn't to go try to resurrect the dead. The answer is to create new churches. The response to this challenge is to start new churches, plant new churches. Put it this way. Would you rather try to raise the dead or make new babies? Which is more fun? <laughs> making, making new churches. That's what we, that's, so we should get oriented that way. Now, while churches that are dying have no sense of mission or vision or purpose, you are now in this moment experiencing a church that is not confused about our mission or our vision or our purpose. Two days ago, I asked my wife, can you tell me the mission statement for Union Chapel Church? And she said, to help people know Jesus Christ, grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, and to go telling others about Jesus. And I went, thank God, my wife knows the mission statement of the church. And I was really happy about that. And so that is our mission. That's why we exist. That's why we are in business. This is the purpose for which we live, to help people know Jesus Christ, to see a transforming, life-altering relationship personally established with Jesus Christ. And second of all, to help people grow in that relationship with Jesus Christ through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, to help people to see the world as their mission field and to be equipped to release their lives into their neighborhood, into their families, into their businesses, to the uttermost parts of the earth, to make disciples of all the nations. That's our deal. That's our mission. That's our mission focus. And we have been and will continue to be a mission-focused church to help people know, grow, and go for Jesus' sake. Now, we are neither confused about what we are going to do. That's our statement of mission, but we also have a statement of vision. And vision is actually what we are going to do together in order to accomplish our mission. We use the word worship as an acrostic, just a memory peg to help us remember what it is that we are going to focus our attention on and what we are actually going to put our hands on and what we are actually going to do in order to accomplish our mission. The W in our, in our vision statement stands for winning the lost. We want to win lost people. We want to win people who are far from God. We want to offer the hope found in Jesus Christ to people who are outside and excluded from the camp. We want to bless people in that way. O stands for outreach to each unique generation. We want to reach children. We want to reach youth. We want to reach young adults. We want to reach older adults. We want the whole spectrum of the, of the generations to be included in our attention and our focus. You all can understand, I just read this autopsy, the last 10 years of this church's life, there was no one younger than 67 years old in this church. And you go, well, that's not healthy. That's not good. That's not balanced. And we all get that, right? If you've got nothing but old people in a church, it's, you, know, you can predict the future. As soon as the last one stops breathing, nobody's left. But equally, it's out of balance and out of health if you have nothing but young people in the church. And one of, the, one, of the wrong, one of the wrong impulses of the millennial generation now 
is to believe that they have it all figured out and that folks in the baby boomer and builder generation don't know what they're doing when it relates to church. And that's presumptuous, young people. That is presumptuous. You don't have it all figured out. There are things that you can only know after you've walked with God for a while. And you haven't walked with God long enough because you're not old enough to have walked with God long enough to know everything you need to know. On your smartphone, you can get any piece of information known to humanity in about eight seconds. You can get any knowledge that has ever been accumulated by humans on your smartphone within 10 seconds. But here's what you can't get on your smartphone. You can't get wisdom. You can't get wisdom. And so you need the cross-pollination. You need the commingling of generations to nurture one another, to share perspective, and so that together we find the very best of all God has to offer to us generationally and move together. Outreach to each unique generation. We do that, and we're going to continue to do that. The R stands for relevant worship. Worship is about the experience of God. You worship God to the degree that you experience God. If you don't experience God, either privately or publicly, when you're trying to worship, you're not worshiping. You may be doing something else, but you're not worshiping because worship is about experience with God, connecting with Him. And so we want to provide worship that's innovative and creative and artistic and thoughtful and, and relevant so that, so that it connects people with God so that we can experience God together. The S in our vision statement stands for strategic missions. We are a church that is mission-minded. At the core of who we are is a, is a keen sense of the high call of God, the mandate of Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so we want to be strategically and intentionally engaged in taking the gospel to the ends of the world. We want to do that locally and globally. We don't apologize for that. We don't back away from that. We are all in. That's our sense of call. That is what we are going to do. We've done it in the past, and we're going to do it even more in the future. Strategic missions. The H in our vision statement stands for home groups. We believe in small groups. We believe in fellowship circles. We believe that life transformation happens best when we're in community and face-to-face relationships so that we can nurture and encourage and challenge and hold accountable each other. So we encourage everybody to be part of a small group. That's what we're going to do. The I in our vision statement stands for impacting the church. By that we mean we want to help any other church, any other ministry, any way that we can to help them to be fruitful and life-giving. Whatever God has given us, we are willing to share with you. Just this past week, I got a call from a, a lay person, a leading lay person in another Methodist church in town. Our church wants to do more to touch our community. We know Union Chapel does a lot of things to help people in our community, can we learn from you and maybe even partner with you from time to time? And the answer to that question is, yes. Yes, we will help you any way we can, and we'll partner with you if that, if that works out. And so we want to impact the church. You know, if Union Chapel's services are completely full all weekend long, how many of you know there's still tens of thousands of people in, in months who need to be reached? Other churches need to be life-giving and fruitful. The P in our vision statement stands for practical ministry. Practical ministry. This is simply expressing the love of God in practical ways. And we're going to continue to do the many and various activities that we engage throughout the year. Community service day, the week-long serve, 101 other ways that individuals and groups in our church reach out to people in a loving, practical way to express the love of God to them so that they know that there's a God in heaven who loves and cares for them. 
win the loss, outreach to each unique generation, relevant worship, strategic mission, home group, impact in the church, practical ministry. This is our vision, and this is what we are going to do in order to stay mission-focused at Union Chapel. Now, let me tell you what we're going to do. We've learned in the United States, and this is true at Union Chapel as well, that the sweet spot for worship is from 10 a.m. to noon on Sunday morning. We know that's the sweet spot. That's when most people come to church. This 1030 service in our own congregation is the largest attended. There's, there's three and four times more people in this service than there are in, the, in the, any of the other services during our weekend. So we know it's the sweet spot. So a few years ago, when we moved this 1030 service over in this venue, in the 180 building, uh, our, our church began to grow, began to grow. And we've added hundreds of people in the last few years, and that's great. In the last 12 months or so, we've noticed a plateauing now in our overall growth. And we know why that's, why that's happening. The reason that's happening is because this room is getting comfortably full and sometimes on special occasions overflowing. And so what we did about a year ago is we opened the video venue over in the sanctuary during this hour, hoping to entice more of us to go over there to the video venue so space would be freed up. And we've, we've had anywhere from 50 people to 300 people over there at the venue, and, but it's been inconsistent, it's, and it's kind of leveled off just under 100 people, and it's just not enough to make the difference that we need to see a change in our numbers overall. So here's what, what we've considered. There are a couple of options that we've put to mind. One is we can make a bigger box. If the box is full, then we need a bigger box. But a bigger box would cost a lot of money. Lots of money. Add on to this building or build it something new. And I'm not inclined to do that right now. We have a lovely campus. We have great spaces. Let's try to utilize what we have. Let's think of something else. The other option that we've considered and the one that we are pursuing is to add a service. When you add a service, then you add room. But again, it, you, we have to consider the sweet spot. <laughs> 10 to noon. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to add a fourth worship service beginning this fall on August, the weekend of August 15, 16, we're going to add a fourth worship service to our schedule here at Union Chapel on the weekend. We'll keep our Saturday night service right in this room at 5.30 in the evening. Then on Sunday morning, we are adding a third service and changing the schedule to accommodate. So at 8.45, just 15 minutes earlier than our current 9 o'clock service, at 8.45, we'll have our first worship service here on Sunday morning, and it will be conducted in the sanctuary. Live, live music over there, live preaching. If I'm preaching that weekend, I'll be preaching over there at 845. And so that will be our first worship service, 845. Then the other two services on Sunday will be in this room, and they will be conducted at 10 o'clock and at 1115. Again, both of them in the sweet spot. So that at 10 o'clock, uh, this room will be just like it is today, uh, operating a principal worship service and then at 11.15, we'll do our third for, of the day. And so beginning on that weekend, August 15, 16, we, we have a new schedule. 8.45, 10 o'clock, 11.15. Don't worry about getting this because for the next 12 weeks, this is all you will hear. And so by the time, by the time August rolls around, you'll get it. You'll have it. Now, here's the question. What is the rationale for this? Why? Why trouble ourselves? I mean, isn't it going okay? Well, yeah, it's going okay. Isn't there room for growth on Saturday night and the earlier service on Sunday? Yeah, 
Yeah, there is. So why? Why are we doing this? Let me just share with you the rationale. And it comes out of our text today in 2 Kings and our willingness to identify with these lepers. And so what happens to these guys is they are desperate. And none of us in this room can understand their level of desperation. They are, they are already outcasts, but now they are starving to death. No one has ever been more pitiful in human history than these four guys. And so this is what they become aware of. The first point, I just have two points now in your outline. The first one is this. They are aware of their need. They're aware of their need. So they go out to the Syrians in total and complete surrender. Think about their heart. Think about their attitude. They're standing there looking at each other. Look, we're dying. We're dead. If we go into town, we're dead. They're not going to feed us in town. Uh, if we stay here, we're dead. We're going to die. Well, we might as well just go out to the Syrians. Maybe they'll kill us. But it doesn't matter. We're dead anyway. Maybe they'll give us something to eat. Either way, we don't have any choice. They understood their need. And so they go out to the Syrian camp in total surrender. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the first time you came to God? Do you remember that? You know, for some of us, we've been so long in the camp of Christianity that we don't remember what it was like to be outside of the camp. But do you remember your heart and your attitude? Do you remember your condition? I remember mine. I just remember like it was yesterday. I can, I can still get in touch with those emotions, those attitudes. Broken, disheartened, disordered, in need, desperate for an answer, aware of my lostness, my separation from God. Maybe you are aware of your lostness and your hopelessness. Do you remember that? And so all of us, every single one of us, came to God in total surrender. God, here I am. I mean, I'm lost. I don't have any hope. I'm acutely aware of my unpreparedness to meet you, my separation and my relationship from you. I, I, I need, I need. Aware of our need. So we said, Lord, I can't help myself. Please forgive me. I'm sorry for my sins. Please accept me into your family. And so we come to God just like those old lepers with our hands in the air in full surrender. They approach the century lines of the Syrian camp with their hands up, they're saying, we're coming in. Don't shoot. It's just us pitiful lepers. We're just sick. We're just, we're just dying. Old lepers, cursed. Don't shoot. We're coming in. And listen to me. That's the way every single one of us have come to God. Every single one of us broken and lost and needy and disordered. Nod your head like you know that's true. That's, a, that's the way everyone comes to God. Yes, everyone does. So they get to the siege line, and there are no centuries there. They come up over the rampart, and the camp is intact. The tents are undisturbed. The fires are burning. There's still meat on the spits. The, the animals are still all tied up and corralled. The entire camp is in place. They, they, they come to the first tent. They open the flap. They're real cautious. They open up and say, don't shoot. It's just me. It's just, I'm an old leper. I'm just, I'm pitiful. Don't shoot. And they open the flap. Nobody is there. Everyone is gone. Now what has happened? God has caused a miracle. He's caused a miracle. Somehow he, he has caused the Syrians to hear armies on either side of their camp, marching toward them. 
they quickly, they quickly imagine that somehow the, the people in Samaria have gotten out and they've gone to the Hittites and the Egyptians and they've paid them off to be mercenaries and now these two armies have outflanked them. They're in a pincer attack and they realize they're going to surround us and kill us all. Run! Run for your lives. They don't bother to pick up anything. They just take off the whole army. And these four lepers now, watch it, they have inherited the entire victory and all of the spoils in this camp. That leads me to the second point, the, the, the only other point we have. And now they become aware of the overwhelming provision of God. Everyone say provision. Provision. Everything is there, everything they ever imagined, every supply, every sustenance, every, everything they, beyond their wildest dreams. Now listen to me. Are you identifying with the lepers yet? If you haven't, let me just take it one step further now. We identify with these guys because when we first came to God, we came in full surrender. I mean, we were pitiful. We were lost. We, we couldn't help ourselves. We were undone, disordered, needy. So we identify with these guys now. Now they go into the camp and they find this amazing victory, this amazing provision. Isn't this just like the grace of God? Think about that. The grace of God that causes the victory and came while we slept. When you don't understand it, you didn't cause it. You can't explain it. You didn't participate in it. You don't deserve it. And you simply now receive it. It's all yours. Listen, that's grace. That's unmerited favor. That's grace. That's amazing grace that has come to all of us. Can you, can you identify with these guys? Yes, Lord, we came humbly, but now you have pro provided a miracle. And what an astonishing miracle it is. We didn't have anything whatsoever to do with it, but you have given us a great victory. And it's grace, abundant grace, and the joy that comes with that. Some of you, some of you were raised outside of a meaningful faith. I mean, your family of origin, your parents didn't take you to church. You didn't have any spiritual orientation. You, you grew up in a, in a rough kind of dark kind of place. But at some point in your life, Jesus intersected you. He crossed your life and he said, here's the hope. Here's the life. This is the opportunity you've been looking for. And you said yes to Jesus. And you said, Lord, I, I don't know what to do. I just, I give you whatever I understand of you. That's all I have. That's all I know. And you surrendered to Jesus. And Jesus filled your life with abundance. And you, and you thought and you believe and you know to this moment that it was the most wonderful thing that has ever happened to you. And you're so filled with joy and so filled with happiness. God, you, were, you came from a dark place. You know. It was a dark place, but God's turned the light on. Listen, I can tell you my story. I was raised in a mainline denominational church. But sadly, I spent the first 16 years of my life, spiritually speaking, watch this, starving to death. I identify with these lepers. I mean, every Sunday, I went to church every week. My parents drugged me. To, my parents weren't even Christians. They drugged me to church every week. We sat there, and, and I heard the Word of God read every week. I heard the Bible read every week of my life virtually until when I was 16 years old, and suddenly 
Jesus got my attention. I said, yes, Lord, I, I need, I need. I'm aware of my need. So God, please, by your grace. And I, and I, I found new life, abundant life in Jesus Christ. And then suddenly, this is, this is my story. The word of God, which was so dull and so stale to me before, now it was life-giving. This is the word of God to me. And I was so hungry. I was starving, and I just couldn't get enough of God's word and his truth in my life. It was so life-giving, so fulfilling, so wonderful. And I thought about prayer. I thought, man, you know, I had been in these church services where prayers were offered. It was so dull and lifeless and perfunctory, and it just didn't connect. It didn't make any sense to me at all. But now prayer, there is a God who is alive in the heavens and he cares about me and he calls me into conversation with him. He hears my prayers and God answers my prayers. And it's a wonderful thing. Oh, I was so excited about that intimacy and meaningfulness with God in prayer. It was so wonderful. I can tell you, I, I, I can still recall now, my life was just changed. I, the day after I became a Christian, I woke up, and I'm a 16-year-old boy, and I listened to me. I, I noticed, I, I made a conscious notice of this. I can still recall this. It was so strange to me. I, I said, you know, the grass seems greener. The sky seems bluer. I noticed my mother's flowers growing in the garden. I, I can remember the moment. I, I, I commented to myself just internally. I thought, how strange. I noticed the birds singing. Now listen to me. 16-year-old boys, they notice stuff. But it's not that stuff. <laughs> it's not that stuff. And so I just made a note. You know, I just realized I'm a different person. You say, you, you're 16, you just got some good stuff. That's what you got. Listen, I did. I got the best stuff. His name is Jesus. And he can transform your life and bring joy to you where there's been emptiness. So the lepers, the lepers they, they're in this moment. And they think, well, you know, the people in the city, they never did anything for me. In fact, they've ostracized us. It's kind of like modern pop culture, you know, pushing Christian and Christian values to the margins. You know, the people in the world, they, they've not been nice to us. They don't, they don't care about us. In fact, we suspect that if a bunch of folks from outside of the camp come into the camp now, they'll just take what we have. Yeah, that's what they'll do. They'll just rob what we have. You know, if we, if we actually care about people in the trailer park across the street, they start coming to the church here, they might take my seat. They might take my spot. People in the neighborhood over here, people in the neighborhood this direction, people in the whole county, you know, there are tens of thousands of people who aren't in church today, live in Delaware County. They don't know Jesus. They're in a dark place. They're living in cannibalized self-destruction. Some of their, some cases, it's horrible. It's horrible. Their experience, the darkness they live in, the spiritual starvation that they experience. These guys go, you know, those folks have never cared for us. They don't care about us now. So they went back to their hoard, and they said, you know, if they come, they're just going to take this stuff from us. So they gather up some spoils. You know, there's gold and silver and raiment all from these other conquered cities still in the camp. They gather this up. They run out there. They bury it on this side of the camp. Then they go into another tent, gather up some more stuff, run over, and they bury it on this side of the camp. 
And after a little while of that, they get hungry again. They say, you know, we haven't visited the dessert table yet. So they go over to the dessert table and there's chocolate cake and cherry pies and all the puddings. And they're just engorging themselves and they just can't get enough until finally they're just full. You know, one more spoonful of pudding. They just say, oh, I just can't eat anymore. That's it. I'm done. And it's at that moment that they pause and they think. You know, their frantic hoarding now is cut short. And they think, God has worked a great victory and we know all about it and we're in on it and we're enjoying it and we're eating it and we're consuming it and we're hoarding it. We're living in it. But you know, actually there are people back in town who are dying. They're living in this horrible starvation, this cannibalistic destruction, and we're out here feasting on the victory that God has provided. If we wait till morning, more people will die. And so you can push back and say, well, why do we have to change things? Why do we have to adjust? Why do we have to add services? Don't you know that's going to cost people? This is going to be hard for us? I mean, think of all the volunteers. I mean, add a service. I mean, ushers and greeters and child care and nursery and and people in the coffee bar and the bookstore and worship teams and just the whole network of people necessary to pull off another service. It's just, it's just huge. Why don't you just leave us alone? Aren't, I mean, isn't this good enough? We're happy the way it is. We like it here. So what's the rationale for doing something different that's going to cost us all something? And this is the rationale. And I want to put this verse on the screen. This is it, 2 Kings 7, 9. I, I really don't think there's any other reason. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. Why are we doing this? Because be, it's not right. It's not right to keep it to ourselves. It just isn't. They, they responded this way because of the abundant provision of God. They're overwhelmed by their unexpected good fortune. They're awed by the provision of God. They realized it's a crime to keep this incredible bounty of God's blessing all to ourselves. Now listen, friends. There's a morning coming. There's a morning coming, a great getting up morning. It's coming, just as sure as the world. And Jesus is going to split the eastern sky, and he's going to roll the clouds back like a used tablecloth and we're all going to rise to meet him in the air and forever we'll be with him. There's a great getting up morning that's coming. But listen to me. In the meantime, between now and then, there are people who are going to die in the night. There are people living in this city who are under the destructive siege of the enemy. And God has worked a victory and we know about it. We know what the victory is. We know how to receive it. We know how to pass it on to others. We know all of that. And if we just keep coming into Union Chapel week after week, feasting ourselves, gorging ourselves on the blessing of God, without telling those who are trapped and lost and starving and cannibalizing themselves, if we don't tell, we're not doing right. We're not doing right. We can't keep this to ourselves. No, no, we can't keep this to ourselves. No, no, you can't keep that to yourself. Mm -mm, no, no, we can't do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. We can't do that. No, no, we have to share it. Let me close with this. I like to let my imagination run sometimes. I've been imagining this scene. Let's just say 100 years from right now, this moment, 
100 years from now. Every one of us in this room will be in eternity. We'll be in eternity. Every one of us. 100 years from now. What if Jesus granted us a nice dispensation? I said, Jesus, how about if we get everyone together who was at that 1030 service at Union Chapel back in May of 2015, 100 years ago today? Can we all get together just to celebrate a bit? He said, sure. And we all get together. Just you and me. Just us. Nobody else. Just us. Just the people in this room. And we use that 100-year anniversary of this moment to reminisce about what God has done through our church as a result of our willingness to sacrifice just a little bit more. And we'll share some testimonies. And people will get up and say, you know, I didn't think it was going to work, but gosh, what God did, it was so wonderful. And, and I wasn't planning on volunteering, but I volunteered a little bit and, and did my part. And, wow, what God did, it's just we're so thankful, so, so happy. It just brings such joy to us. And what, what we, in my imagination, what we won't notice while we're reminiscing and talking about the goodness of God from this moment is that while we're having our meeting, people start filing into the balcony, just like our mezzanine now all the way around us. People were filing in, filling all the seats all the way around. And at some point, some point, we didn't even notice they're coming in. And at some point, we, we pause and say, you know, well, you know, I guess maybe it did make a difference. We're not sure how much, but we know God did something. And then there'll be a woman. She'll stand up. She'll be right over here in the balcony. She'll stand up. She'll go like this. She said, I, she said it made a difference to me. She'll look down maybe to one of you and say, well, there, there's Susie. I recognize Susie. I handed my, my baby to Susie in the nursery the first time I came to Union Chapel. And she took care of my baby, and I trusted her with my baby. And she was so kind to watch her in the nursery while I came over to the service. And I heard about the love that God has for me in Jesus Christ for the first time. And he became real to me, and it changed my life and my family's life. And, and for generations now, we've seen God's blessing on our family. And it all started back there when you guys decided to open your doors to more people. And another guy in the balcony will stand up and say, yeah, I have a testimony. And then there will be another testimony. And then people will start to shout from the balcony saying, yeah, I'm here because of that. I'm here because you opened your hearts. I'm here because you opened your doors. I'm here because you were willing to share with the abundant provision of God's grace in your life with us. I wonder, in my imagination, I just imagine these things. I wonder if about that time, you know, we're starting to feel pretty good about the whole thing. And what if Jesus shows up? What if Jesus comes in the meeting? What if he walks up to the front? <laughs> what are we going to do then? Jesus comes in, he smiles. What if he looks at one of the worship guys? Looks at him, smiles at him, winks says, hey, how about give us some of that relevant worship <laughs> you guys are all about? And what if the, what if the worship team strikes up? How many, how many of you think maybe the party might be on? The party might be on. Here's Jesus. Jesus would just be standing here, and we'd just worship him. Just glorify him. Give him thanks. Give him praise, because we're nothing but a bunch of beggars. We're nothing but a bunch of outcasts. We're nothing but a bunch of lepers. We're nothing but a bunch of folks who are absolutely and completely and undeniably lost and undone and disordered and without hope in this life or the next. But he made a way for us. He made a way when there was no way. And we said yes to his wonderful gift of grace. 
He made the miracle happen, and we received it gladly. And we were willing then to share it with others. And that will be what makes eternity so glorious and the worship of God so pure. I don't know about you, but I... Listen, let me just tell you something. That day's coming. We're going to do that someday. We're going to do it. And I just imagine the worship will be like even more free than it is now. I mean, I think it might genuinely make us happy and worshipful. And it'll be a, a day of rejoicing. And that's the day that we're pointing to. So friends, this is what we're doing. We're doubling down in order to be one beggar offering another beggar some bread. And we're going to see God's grace come to many lives. And I'm excited about it. And I know you'll be excited and praying about it as well. Let's pray. Lord, we pause this morning thanking you for your goodness, your abundant supply, your grace. Lord, I pray now that you would order our steps, that you would go before us, that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, remind us of our mission. Remind us of our purpose. Remind us that we are a people called out and set apart for these good works. And that we have the enormous privilege and honor to represent you in the world. And so God, help us to be faithful in that witness. To the praise of the glorious praise of Jesus Christ. Because it is, after all, about him. We love you, Jesus. Stand up strong in our midst. Draw people to yourself, we pray. In your holy name. And everyone said...